Scots Whiskey Explorers, a podcast where we discuss everything there is to discuss about whiskey. I'm Peter, and I'll be joined by Stuart in each episode, where we will ask the questions and seek out the answers that are prompted by a love of whiskey. If you want to know more about how we came to be making this podcast, please have a listen to the Season 1 trailer. In Season 1, we'll be focusing on the fundamentals of single malt Scots whisky production. Everything from barley to fermentation to maturation will be examined and explored in exhaustive detail. If you'd like to know more about Scots Whisky Explorers, or if you'd like to get in touch, leave comments or suggestions, please go to www.scotswhiskeyexplorers.com and you can find us on Twitter at WhiskeyScots. Thank you for listening to Scots Whisky Explorers. We hope you enjoy it. Now, please sit back, relax, pour yourself a jam, and enjoy our conversation about maturation. Hey, Stuart. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Peter. How you doing? Yeah, good to see you, man. Good to see you. It's been a while. Well, I mean, I've seen you at other stuff, but uh, we've not done not done this for a while. Yeah, well, we, we were busy doing all those multiple distilling episodes, I think. That must have kept us occupied for all that time. And now, and now we've moved on again some more. Maturation this time. This is massive. <laughs> it's terrifying me slightly about how multifarious this topic is. It's just, I'm feeling a bit swamped. I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed I think what are we going to yeah. what are your thoughts yeah well we'd had some some chat beforehand about about that and we I suppose we both noticed that that we hadn't noticed we just followed the path through the distillery you know from the barley coming in with so little imagination about how to organize ourselves that we just followed that path we didn't need to we just exactly it was there sitting there for us the path unfolded before us like uh, some beautiful pages from a book. It just yeah, so, opened, and we and we and we and we read, and we yeah, discovered. So, oh, 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 we could have we could have walked blindfold from <laughs> from grain to spirit coming out the other end. Maybe not quite. I like to think we've put in a wee bit more effort than that. But well, some of us more than others. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about you. <laughs> I'm talking about you. Some more than others, right? Anyway, um, but, joking aside, so um, what are we, what are we going to talk about? I mean, this is, do we just okay. say uh, right? It goes in the cask, and it stays there for a while, and then it comes out, and it's better. Yeah, that's enough. We just <laughs> that's better than we've done up to now, and we don't need to edit that. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I suppose, like you, you're struck by this, isn't? This isn't quite such a linear process when you think about all the elements that are going on in the both kind of in the cask and where and where it's maturing. Mm. So it it was probably going to help maybe if we if we set out or stall a bit and maybe try to have a kind of structure to episodes. I think we'll, we'll need more than one or two episodes. I think to do yeah. justice to. To aging and maturation. Just as you're saying that, I'm I'm setting the, the the timer because obviously, I know everybody appreciates, you know, two hour long episodes where there's 
two Scottish guys droning on about the minutiae of whiskey production. But I've set the um, the timer and I think, yeah, we need to be organised in, in how we're how we're setting our stall out and how we're organising this and subsequent episodes because it, it, it doesn't take a genius to work out that there's too many things going on for us to cram into an hour or even an, even an hour and a half. That's never going to, we're, we're only going to scratch the surface. So yeah, I, th- I think though I quite like that we set ourselves a discipline when we were doing distilling of trying to you know, stick to roughly 45 minutes an hour and just and work backwards from there. Try and focus ourselves for that period of time, share some good insights. Mm. But I, if it's the right term, I quite like that discipline then of focusing then, of focus rather than jibber jabbering, which I have to say we're quite good at, and I really enjoy a jibber jabber. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe, maybe that's between you and me as opposed to the rest of the world. Yeah. Let's save that for the pub for when we can get yeah, back to the pub. We finally get back to the pub. Jeez. What, anyone, so, else, anyone else missing the pub? Write in. Send me an email if you're missing the pub because I need some solidarity here. Right. Sorry, you were going to say. Yeah, it is. It is such a. It's quite a peculiar prospect, isn't it? The pub. It feels quite still quite alien at the moment, and I think well, maybe certainly in Scotland, we're a week while away from that yet, despite some promising messages coming from First Minister today about changes already in terms of uh, meeting with other people outdoors, possibly being announced next week. But who, However, who knows, maybe by the time I edit this and it gets aired, <laughs> we might all be in the pub. <laughs> that's, Could that's we the do a Are working at the moment as we're a few, a few weeks, maybe months behind. But anyway, yeah. whiskey is timeless and we're we're getting involved in the timeless and timely concept of maturation. So, so anyway. Does that mean we'll, we'll finally? Well, does that mean we'll finally get to the pub to launch? It's called Whiskey Explorers. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> let's do that. Hey, everybody, welcome to the launch. It's episode seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So finally, getting ourselves to some sort of organisation and discipline here. I, when we chatted, we thought about maybe it was roughly four areas, not mutually exclusive, in fact, very much the opposite. Mm, lots of overlap. If we, if we can assert those those terms, then maybe it would help us structure our thinking mm-hmm. and improve the delivery of, of what it is we're trying to share. Mm. So over the next piece, I'm not quite sure how these will work out time-wise, but then that, that's... Uh, we'll find that out, I suppose, in due course. But so we want to talk about the kind of legal and historical context of maturation. Mm-hmm. Casks, what are they made of, and warehousing, and the, the, their locations. Yeah. And and the fourth or last is, is a. It depends how we find it, but you no, know, what, what's going on in that cask? Because I I. Like most of the things we've done up to now, it's only when you begin to get digging that wee bit deeper, you think, you know, I've just been pulling along here on the on the surface, not really giving this a great depth of thought. And that the last one of what goes on struck me as 
a great pool of <laughs> chemical goings on. And yeah. as we've mentioned before, neither of us have got any chemistry background. So that certainly I found quite quite both challenging and exciting and quite remarkable along the way. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk much more about that at the appropriate time, but just as a wee sidebar, just looking in briefly into what's going on in, in the cask is there's a whole universe of stuff happening in there. I mean, it's just really quite extraordinary. Yeah. And taking a wee step back from that, I think, well, I'm going to be very, very general. I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, pin my colours to the mast quite yet, but it, it appears to me that it's only fairly recently that we, I say we, the scientific whiskey community, those people who are undertaking scientific endeavours to measure and uh, chart what's happening in the cask, I think it's only fairly recently they've been able to really pin it down. And I'm, I, I would say from the 50s and 60s onwards. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, well, maybe not that many hundreds, maybe 150 years, people have been putting whiskey into, into oak casks and this magic alchemy has transformed the liquid into something that's totally different and eminently more drinkable and more flavoursome. But it's only really, I, I feel as though we're, we're, we're now at the kind of vanguard of finding out what's going, what, what really is going on. I'm not saying that I can understand when somebody's describing to me the processes of, uh, you know, mass spectrometry or gas chromatography. I, I don't fully get what they're talking about, but it appears to me that that level of knowledge acquisition is something that's fairly new, that we're, the industry is only now really coming to grasp in concrete scientific terms what is happening during the maturation process. That's, that's big, man. That's, that's huge. That it's, yeah, I think, we're, I think we're, we're, um, it's happening now. Yeah, there's certainly something in that. Sure, I think that as we'll we'll talk about hopefully in a couple of minutes, there's certainly some you know some chemists and some scientific evidence given to kind of early understandings of what whiskey was about and how it matured. But those investigations certainly changed when you started to get mass spectrometry gas photochromatry, those, those, if I've even said that right. Um, no, but so the, the, but that whole step up in terms of scientific endeavour has changed the scrutiny, if you like, that that spirit gets, that goes on within within the cask. Yeah, along with other, I think, some other social changes in terms of malt whiskey drinking becoming more popular mm -hmm. in the last maybe 30 or more years that there's more consideration going on to just the investigation of the of the of the crater in in its entirety, really, mm -hmm. as as brought us to thinking a little bit deeper, I suppose. Are we? Are, well, we don't have to be set in our ways with this with the agenda of how we deal with this. But in 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 rough terms, we're we're thinking about going on today to have a wee chat about the legalities, the law, and the history of it. Yeah. And then, what was he said? Next, next cask types, and that might include 
finishes as well. I suppose the kind of double maturation yeah. finishing thing. Yeah. Casts and what they're made of. Yeah. And then there was the warehouse and the warehouse location, Enigma. And their locations. Um, and what, then the bigger one that, that probably got us a bit mesmerised was what goes on in the cask uh, when, once that spirit is in there. It's more than the whiskey sleeping. Yeah, yeah. There's definite details to be divulged in that one. Yeah, yeah. That 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 episode might might spin out a wee bit longer. I fear. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think? So do you think we could we should name for that forty five minutes an hour? See how we get on. Well, my, we've my, already blathered for about twenty minutes, have we not? <laughs> Let's go to the pub. <laughs> Um, so my, my countdown timer's on 39 minutes so shall we I mean we can we can run over a wee bit there's nothing to say I'm sure you know we can stick 50p in the meter and make it go a little bit longer aye so whiskey maturation law and the history of whiskey maturation yeah where, would you, well, where I... would you start then well, I had a thought of where we should start because casks are, are not exclusive to whiskey. Now, they, they predate any written history of, of whiskey making you know, by, by some hundreds of years. You know, that go back to kind of Roman times when casks would be used to transport goods around. Mm-hmm. You know, so not just liquids, but goods themselves. They're good containers. So, mm-hmm. um, but I suppose more recently, casks as a transportation vessel haven't been quite so important um, as they've been superseded by other lighter materials and different modes of transport. Uh, but suffice to say, you can be pretty sure that having a having a wooden cask with some liquid in it that and you know has been around for a long period of time and and not not just whiskey either you know. Rum and cognac and armagnac other, and other brandies would have been matured, like, uh, quite apart from wine and, and other fortified wines along mm. the way. Yeah. So, so it wouldn't be beyond the realms of suggestion that someone thought, oh, I'll just, I'll put my whiskey in there just to look after it for a while. And then perhaps by accident came back later and found that actually that's really quite nice. Yeah. I'll not. I'll not need to add anything to take the harsh edges off. The the kind of image that springs to mind, and you, whether this actually happened, I think is probably beside the point. But the image that I have is an illicit whiskey producer gets a signal that the excise men are coming up the glen, and you need to hide your still and hide your stash, and you know get rid of it because if not, it will be confiscated. And uh, your means of production will be confiscated, and your your horse might get confiscated, and your your cart might get confiscated, and you know that's you, you're destitute. But anyway, yeah, you, you get the word. All oh, the excise man's coming up the glen, so you you get your new make that's just been put in the barrel because you're going to transport it down to the local town or further afield to sell it, and you just you bury it, you you dig a hole and you stick it in the ground. And then you forget where you put it. And then somebody finds it several years later 
or you remember where it was several years later and you taste it and by golly, it's lovely. Yes. There was one more thing that just cropped into mind. I don't want to dive divert the your 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 flow here. I don't, I, but I just I want to flag up something that I heard recently, and it was on the excellent Liquid Antiquarian YouTube channel hosted by Dave Broom and Arthur Motley, and they were talking about rum. One of the episodes was about rum. I've been blown away by all the episodes. It's been great, really educational, really engaging. Uh, but one of the episodes, Dave was talking about rum. And, or it might have even been the one when they're talking about the 1823 Excise Act. And it would be borne out in the historic literature that rum producers knew about maturation and they were they were they were working with maturation and they were using maturation you know way before scotch whiskey producers were 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 using it as a matter of course so i i just wanted to flag that we put that in the sand there and go you know you mentioned different cast types and it just popped into my head rum these guys were doing it already so you know nothing's new under the sun anyway yeah cuz i think well where i thought to start, you know, th these are very arbitrary points anyway, but, you know, and certainly in, in any maturation requirements start to be set at the beginning of the 20th century, but there's still some some literature around that would suggest certainly people of, of greater means could afford to mature their whiskey. So I think George Sainsbury talks about it in his A Cellar book uh -huh. about having a cask and actually making your own uh, malt blend or vatting. Uh, but again, I think he's referring to the mid to late 19th century as opposed to, although he wasn't printed until the beginning of the 20th century. And similarly, there's a, a, an Elizabeth Grant. Mm -hmm. her, her memoirs were published posthumously of memoirs of a Highland lady and she too is quoted again talking about the same period, you no know, kind of late mid to late 19th century of talking about I think she talks about Glen Livet being long and wood mm -hmm. and soft as milk, something like that. So the, but again, these these are clearly people of of some means. And I think my sense of picking it up was maybe at the beginning of the 20th century. And actually fits into some of the stuff you picked up when we were doing distilling about you mentioned lowland stills, which oh, yeah. were just you know it sounded like really glorified frying pans to burn off the distillate really quickly, and so that you get as a kind of confluence of three or four things going on at the same time, both a kind of social and a legal context because you've got essentially cheap spirit being passed off as whiskey, mm -hmm. a social problem of public drunkenness, and a politicians at the time, David Lloyd George being perhaps the most recognisable, has been concerned about that. So, you know, so there's another social movement in terms of the building of the temperance and abstinence movements that were concerned about the nature of public drunkenness. So that... Fed in to it. And, what, and also what you had 
this just occurred to me, the turn of the 20th century was the Patterson crash. So lots of grain distilleries going out of production, DCL, or Distillers Company Limited, buying them up. Mm-hmm. And also, and to, to all intents and purposes, I might be choosing my words wrongly here, but essentially sponsoring, of all bodies, Islington Borough Council to bring a, a court case as to identify what is whiskey. So there's a and DCL encouraging or funding the process so that there's a discussion between what is grain, what we would recognise as grain, mm-hmm. and what is a malt whiskey. Can they can they be both be called whiskey? And although that particular court case found in favour of malt whiskey, and they weren't they talked about whiskey changing through maturation, but they weren't they weren't. No, there were no declarations about um, whether whiskey had to be matured for any particular length of time. But as a, a kind of second prize, DCL argued for a royal commission on declaration of what is whiskey. And we're talking 1903, 06? 1906. So that royal commission reported in 1908 and they declared that grain and malt whiskey, as we would know it, uh, could be described as whiskey. So they, they, they overturned the view of the original what is whiskey case. How does this have a bearing? What kind of impact does that have on how producers would contemplate maturing, warehousing or not maturing? Their spirit. Well, I know that. I know that. Up until what, what we've not really made explicit is, I think I don't know the exact dates, but you know we're talking through the eighteen hundreds. The whiskey that was produced, by and large, would be gathered off the still and sold as such. You know, if you if you were a resident in Glasgow in eighteen forty, and you went down the boozer. You're going to be drinking spirit that's pretty much just new make. Yeah. So very very raw stuff. Yeah, like hugely raw. I think that was probably why a lot of the gentry would be drinking brandy as well, and and whiskey was seen as a, you know, a poor man or a working man's tipple. But the the 1908 the the kind of re, the, the report and the of the commission. Did that have a, any? Did that lay out anything in terms of the maturation? Was was there anything expounded upon there that would affect how producers? Yeah, age yeah it was alluded. It was alluded to, but not a compulsory bonding was thought of as a possibility, but it wasn't enforced at that particular point. Right. Okay. Uh, so that, that for me was the first kind of beginnings of. A hint, at least, that there was going to be a legal context to having to mature whiskey for a particular length of time. And again, not for... There There seem to be... You can lead... There are a couple of doors into the thinking of that. And we'll, we'll come to that shortly, I'm sure. So we're, we're in 1908 Scotland... 
and we're getting some kind of legal maneuverings that are eventually going to evolve into into legislation that 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 puts into law that whiskey must be matured or must be aged in in cask. But let's not forget that you mentioned the the, the memoirs of the Highland Lady, and there are I think there are, there are other examples of maturation taking place anyway you know i i imagine that some people would be savvy to it and there would be there would be people in the know you know some some producers would be like right i'm you know whether it's an illicit whether it's a farm in a village that's producing spirit and they know that it tastes better after you've stuck it in a cask for six months you know even just marginally better after six months it's not like there's a a parting of the clouds and a hallelujah moment where suddenly it's known to the world that whiskey is better if it's matured in 1906. We understand now, you know, these concepts will have been percolating amongst the population that that's making the, the whiskey already. Yeah, and there's a tension, I think, between those social concerns about public drunkenness, commercial imperative to make profit, and to maximise that profit by producing the spirit in the least, in the fastest possible way. So all, of, and also I suppose if you're a customer, are you really, you know, and you're used to gut rot, are you really looking for finest Glenlivet at probably ten times the price of what you're paying for your your dram at the minute? Yeah, and um, I'm not sure you would be. You'd be drinking for different reasons, wouldn't you? Um, but. There's still a trail, you know, so there are other mechanisms in terms of trying to reduce alcohol consumption. And I think there's another intervention there shortly after the Royal Commission from David Lloyd George, who'd been Chancellor then. So there was a tax on, the tax was increased on proof gallons of whiskey. Uh, so that, that was a David Lloyd George thing. He was a Methodist, so he was anti-alcohol anyway. Yeah. Uh, but you can see the there are threads as to how to get to this point. But it, it wasn't until six years later, until 1915, with the passing of the Immature Spirits Act, that there was a minimum of two years bonding required. And again, I think whilst we have maybe coming at this from a, an, a, a quality of spirit issue, there's, there are maybe other undercurrents there about, well, if you put whiskey away, for two years, that means folk can't get it for two years. It's going to be more expensive. Yeah. There's going to be evaporation. It's going to stop. It's going to turn the tap off, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And that's what I have this vision of the kind of the lowlands of Scotland being filled with these grain distilleries just pouring grain whiskey all over Britain, you know, but. So at a, at a stroke then, by requiring that two years of bonding, I imagine one of the intentions would be then to to turn that tap, if not off, certainly to, to slow it down a bit. Yeah. And, and, and again, and that's, sorry, the, that's the biggest irony, isn't it? That they wanted to stop people drinking, but what they did was just make it tastier. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> so again, you know, folk, you know, folk wouldn't be well be drinking that fast, fast loose spirit, I imagine. But 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 within a year that that two year minimum bonding had been increased to three. 
So yeah. and that's that's it. You know that 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 has stayed in the statute since 1916. Yeah. So here we are in 2021. You know, 105 years later, and that's still the minimum aging standard for whiskey. I had that date in in my notes: 1916, three years in, in oak, or three years aging. So the only the next thing that I've got. Maybe I'm jumping and I'm diverging from the narrative here, so apologies. But the next thing I've got is 1988 with the Scotch Whiskey Act of 1988. So yeah, um, I was a wee bit before that. I think that the Scotch Whiskey Association was incorporated in 1960. Right. But that's still 44 years away. Yeah. So there's and, a long time of there's a lot of whiskey getting made where when. Made, marketed, sold, labelled, imported, exported, where there's there's no regulations on how, how to do that, how, how you're how you're allowed to do that. Anyway, that's that's maybe for 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 another episode. Well, I I think even this is just straight off the top of my head, sure. I think so that 1916 is the middle of the First World War, and very quickly after that got depression, prohibition mm. and the Second World War. And it's arguable that that 44, the 44 years in between 1960 and SWA being incorporated, there's a lot of turmoil going on mm-hmm. economically, so, socially, yeah, uh-huh. and militarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, there wouldn't, would there really be that much time to think about the nuances of Scotch whisky because... Really, it was it was a bit of currency in the post post Second World War, certainly. Absolutely, yeah. I would need yeah. to I would need to go back and check for what what it was post Second World War, but it'd be that would be problematic because then the United States brought in prohibition, wouldn't it? As 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 having been the major consumer of whiskey at that point. One one we anomaly I picked up on though is mm. that what we have is, well, I suppose I'm second guessing myself here, so I'll I'll put out my Put out my thoughts, and then I maybe need to pick them apart a bit. <laughs> but we, our focus has been primarily Scotch whisky. Mm-hmm. So three years, one day, that's your Scotch. But two years, three hundred and sixty-four days, that's still called plain British spirit. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if those same rules then apply for well, the same rules apply for. England and Wales, and 1916 would still apply to Ireland as well. Yeah, so that's why it's called plain, plain British spirit because it's all whiskey really across the British Isles. So I was thinking I had a story there, but really I don't. I I, I kind of wish you did. <laughs> <laughs> so did I. I, um, I, had, I had a ha ha moment, <laughs> but it's not really a ha ha. <laughs> From aha to oh no, uh, yeah. No, but I I was asking questions about that recently. With uh, we were on a tasting and we were tasting some great. I can't remember. Was it Springbank? Was it Hazelburn? Or was it Longrow? PBS. Yeah. I don't see the name British appearing in anything else to do with Scotch whiskey. No, I think that's just evidently so and i was just wondering why it's plain british spirit why is it not plain scottish spirit 
Yeah, I, I think you just have, you have to think about it in the kind of history of the times in terms of the context where the legislature was based. Mm-hmm. That that would that was legislating for the whole of the the whole of the British Isles at the time, including what's now the South of Ireland or era. That that those are kind of prevailing thoughts of the time. So we didn't have anything like the devolution or the independence that we have now. It, it's a nice little wormhole back into centralised Great Britain and Northern Ireland thinking. So given that. Well, we're we're going to, we're, we're going somewhere other than maturation with this. I'm going. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go there because the clock's ticking. Yeah. So, let's let's play on. We have, we've got the we we've found out that the maturation works for Scotch whiskey. A Highland lady says so, and Lloyd George agrees, but he wants to stop his drinking it. But then he makes it tasty. So. <laughs> Is that? It was also, but I also a friend. It was, it was particularly uh, Philip Hills who was originally associated with the setting up of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. Oh yeah. Uh, in, in his book, appreciating whiskey, he he too but set out another slight paradox. And mm-hmm. that, from his point of view, he was suggesting, well, actually, part of this process, you can see the rise and the weight and the power of the blending houses and arguably they by virtue of creating blends which is what people would have been drinking yeah ordinary folk would have been drinking that by virtue of their control of stock they were they were perhaps able to smooth out the worst edges of the gut rot that they were serving now i'm, and I'm using those words very advisedly gut rot that is yeah. you know so for him he saw that as them in the ascendancy then. So for certainly from for the remainder of the 20th century, you know, so maybe up to the last kind of oh, sorry, the first three quarters of the 20th century, there wouldn't really be that much interest in malt whiskey. That whiskey uh, then became, you know, it was blends. Scotch was whiskey, and a whiskey blend was scotch. Mm-hmm. That that there weren't really any other more um Elaborate meanings than what than than a branded blended whiskey. And I think that's a really interesting thought from him. And as another a further paradox in that, given how things have changed in the last, you know, the latter half of the twentieth century and into the twenty first, mm-hmm. when there's been much more focus on wood, there's a whole discourse, a whole discussion around the importance of wood in creating whiskey. Yeah, he then. He takes another turn in his argument, saying then, well, because of the power then of blending and what it could smooth out, there wasn't then the same requirement, there wasn't the same need to focus on the quality of wood. That The, the discourse then was about so, consistency of flavour and consistency of colour, and that could be achieved by a whole multifarious range of Blending skill. I was going to say jiggery pokery there, but that that that's an insult, really, because blending is a magic, amazing art. Mm-hmm. So, but it, I, I think it's interesting that he talks then that you're moving away from the need to concentrate on wood because most of that whiskey then is going to be might have ice in it, it might have mm-hmm. a flavoured fizzy drink in it. Yeah, it's not like that. The inherent focus on the spirit that you do when you're drinking malt, which you, you, you might even be horrified at putting a wee bit of water in 
know, yeah. but the most the most you and I would talk about doing in terms of drinking malt is a couple of drops of water. So I thought that was an interesting point that he's so that again there's a kind of multi multi layered thing going on there. But so you've got these corporate interests, a change a change in social drinking habits towards cheaper blended spirit that with a focus on the consistency of flavour and colour that can be achieved by mixing and matching different casks as opposed to... So that, that's a completely different direction from then the later change to the focus on the quality of wood that we would associate with, with malt whisky and single malt. That's really quite interesting to read when juxtaposed with... OK, so in 1930... Anais MacDonald published his seminal work, Whiskey. Mm. And that's barely, barely a dozen years after the Immature Spirits Act, given his three years in Oak. And at the same time, there's the rise of the blenders. I mean, when we're talking about the rise of the blenders between 1900 and 1920, or between the late 1800s, that's when it really kind of takes hold. Well, when was phylloxera? Because it was phylloxera, the, the phylloxera infestation in the French vineyards that decimated the brandy industry, which allowed Scotch whiskey to take a foothold in the middle and upper classes. And then the, 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 the blenders would have been in full play by then. But in 1930, an Ace MacDonald is taking the view that the commission should not have regarded grain whiskey to be whiskey he's utterly adamant and scathing in his reproach that malt whiskey is malt malt whiskey is whiskey and don't don't sully it don't dilute it you know um philosophically speaking don't don't widen those parameters to let these charlatans who are making grain whiskey in the door and and call themselves whiskey so that's interesting that philip hills would take the view of the blenders in that way but I would, I would view it through the prism of an Ace McDonald's point of view of it's not really, or is it? You know, I, we're all really accustomed to to green whiskey now, and and, and yeah. it's got it's got some great characteristics and some great things to bring to your glass. But it's interesting how it all played out historically. Yeah, I don't recall Philip Hills making a statement either way, in terms of you know his view on the. The spirit that he preferred or he thought was was a better item but i think his argument held some water for me pardon the terrible slight bun i i think you're that approach that kind of mindset it rings bells for me because my dad's not a whiskey drinker and i remember having a conversation with him about whiskey and he would maybe have a maybe have a blend in the cabinet he'd have a bottle of something blended in the cabinet but he recalls being given a talisker and just, he, he said it blew his head off. Mm. It was so pungent. And it, it wouldn't be, you know, we're talking maybe in the 60s or early 70s, maybe the mid-70s, but at that time, even at that time, the, the, the received wisdom might have been that, you know, those, those malts are just too out there They're, they need taming they need blended out you know something which to... was probably least underlined or if not led 
by multifarious marketing campaigns about telling you about how smooth the whiskey was. But of course, those whiskies would have been blends. Yeah. So, and that, but I think even that chain coming right, you know, coming from the late nineteenth into the early twentieth of that whole royal commission into what is whiskey, and or even Islington Borough Council being invited to to make the case while being sponsored by the blenders themselves. I, I, you know, so there's there's clearly a a play there. There's power, both economic and political, at, at mm-hmm. work there. That has has consequences at the other side, but in terms of the way whiskey pans out for the next 50, 60 years, essentially to be a blend. I think that's very true, but let's not uh, overlook how huge the Scottish Lowland blenders, how huge the Hagues and the Steens were with massive green distilleries in the Lowlands, around about Edinburgh, Preston Pans, all through the central belt and in the lowlands. And these guys were massive for 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 almost generations, you know, with huge amount uh, huge amounts of output. But bizarrely, or maybe not bizarrely, very little political power because they were they were Scottish and the they were undone in some respects by a lot of the decisions made by the uh, HMRC and the, the Exchequer. But they were still very much in play on the run-up to this decision to make whiskey, a blended whiskey and malt whiskey and grain whiskey all being regarded in the same way. But we've got some interesting things, I think, to to say about the, the maturation process and the subsequent episodes. I think there's lots to say about Grain maturation. I think there's there's obviously tons to say about single malt maturation. Yeah, I don't think you know. A hundred years ago, we would have been sitting saying, "Well, it's pretty much recognised now that you know sixty to eighty percent of the flavour in your whiskey comes from the wood." Mm. So, by definition, the quality of that wood is crucial to how good your whiskey is. That that's. It's peculiar how these things have a way of coming round, although I think and to some degree, I think by looking at each part in the process, you can see why particular producers decide to focus or have a particular view about each of the individual ingredients at each particular point in the whole process from the very beginnings of malting right the way through the mashing fermentation and distilling process that each of those now has become subject to such a level of scrutiny and scientific endeavour that it opens up the understanding and possibility I think and it kind of in some ways it it seems very that there are lots of opportunities to make things in a very specific way yet as we were mentioning, the SWA was incorporated in 1960. It's essentially a trade body, you know, you have to join. Not And not every distiller is a member of that. Yeah. But they, they set out, or they have set out, although there are other rules, in fact, <laughs> if you want to make whiskey, and you, you have to get your whiskey verified by the SWA, there's a 90-page document to uh, download and keep 
and go through the process of actually how you go about making whiskey. So it's very specific rules, which I think the SWA is often accused of being quite a conservative body, but it's got the, the rules are very specific to what whiskey is, that it, it can only be matured in Scotland, can only be matured in an oak cask of less than 700 litres, mm-hmm. and it must be matured only in an excise warehouse. And something that I haven't found where this is, or a permitted place. And it's for those often it. <laughs> oh shit, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry. I'll edit that out. And for for those of who have enjoyed a little bit of a bottle your own in a shop, that permitted place is not a shop. Yeah, yeah. No, that 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 we, we were talking about playing British spirit. So what you have is the as soon as that spirit leaves a warehouse and it and as has happened in, uh, I think the whiskey shop have done it. Distillers do bottle your own at the warehouse at the distillery, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, Cardenheads amongst others. I think I'm trying to think of other shops. Chester Whiskey Shop used to do it as well. So you could bottle your own from a cask in the shop, but that's no longer whiskey yeah, because it's not it's not matured in the warehouse. It's yeah, plain British spirit. Or 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 conversely. What we were having a conversation about at one of the club nights was that all of those fill your own from the distillery shop is just a wooden cask and inside the wooden cask is a metal container because they're not allowed to have spirit maturing in the shop. Yeah, the whiskey shop, I think, that when it did its bottle your own right from the start, I remember we were a bit disgruntled about this, but they, they have got glass containers that are wrapped Ah, yeah, that, yeah, glass or steel or something that's yeah. inert. They, uh, you know, other places would have had a cask in the room, but they, they never had. And for reasons of their own, I don't want to cast any aspersions in the whiskey shop, but it, it did it did slightly, slightly take the shine off. But they're for uh, for reasons unbeknown to us at the time, mm-hmm. actually, they were right in terms of the rules. Um and I mean, there are there have been updates all along the way from SWA, and I think we'll cover that probably in later parts. I mean, it's particularly around types of tasks and stuff like that. There were there was there were new rulings laid out as as recently as 2019 as to what particular tasks may be required. But uh, there are some other details as well around that the age of a whiskey can only be expressed in years, and that it has to be the youngest whiskey in the bottle. Sorry, is that's that what time, time up, Stuart? That's, that's a time up. Yeah, we'll, I'm off. We'll, <laughs> we're on overtime now. Keep going. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I've well, only got one, one or two more wee bits, I think, that would fit in for here. So that, that's no bad. So we were saying that the, the whiskey must be the youngest in the bottle. So you could have a five-year-old and a 35-year-old mm-hmm. put together in one cast, married, all that stuff, put in the bottle. That the most you could call that as a five-year-old. Also, but you can't, you, you could, whiskey can be having a vintage, it could be, you know, like 2006, 2007, something like that, but all the whiskey in that bottle must come from that year, must be that declared year. And also, as is, the recent addition to that is you must put on then the year in which it was bottled. So you could have a three-year-old bottle in 2010 if you if it was 20, 2007 vintage. Alternatively, you know, like 
somewhere between 12 and 13 uh, bottled in 2020. So th those are all SWA add-ons. They're all, they, it's a bit like an, a work in progress, really. It's never really finalised. Everything seems a little bit provisional. And, and I, I'm sure they would make a very clear argument for preserving the integrity of the spirit. Mm -hmm. But um, well, we might get into more thoughts around the SWA. It's probably too too late to go into some of them now. I, I think uh, it's best avoided because I hear they've got great lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, curiously, it was a comment on just how great their lawyers are, but I'm not going to take that any further. <laughs> what, so, uh, one thing... Uh, Sorry, no, you go. I, I just had one one other thing to think about that was a nice way of, I thought, round it off nicely. Well, I've also got, I've also got one point that I'd, it's maybe just a, a wee, a full stop before your PS, right? <laughs> um, PBS. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Touche. Boom, boom. Talking about casks, talking about maturing an oak, Andrew Jefford asserts in his 2004 seminal work Peat Smoking Spirit that all Scotch at 2004 Jefford asserts that all Scotch is matured in a second hand cask and he calls this the most astonishing fact in any whiskey book you think about that for a minute the most astonishing fact in any whiskey book is the fact that all scotch uh, in 2004 is matured in a second-hand cask. And that's worth a wee bit of your uh, time thinking about that, I think. There's, there's plenty to unpick in that situation. Not least the reasons for it and not least how that might have changed in the subsequent 16, 17 years yeah. with the proliferation of the use of virgin oak. Yeah. The economics obviously speak for themselves with, you know, a secondhand bourbon cask perhaps costing less than a sixth of a new French oak cask. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do if you're a distiller, you know? And you know you're going to get good results from a secondhand bourbon. So I th I just want you to kind of uh, pin that there and uh, maybe that's one, but I think we'll obviously have a wee look at that in greater detail when we come to talk about cask types. But maturation, by and large, secondhand casks, wow. And we get all this great whiskey. Yeah, uh, that, that's, that's a great trail, I think, into the, into the next section. Mm-hmm about how it's a wee bit mind-bending to get your head around and are you right the only anomaly or the only change and since Jeffrey wrote his book is, is about that use of virgin oak and I wonder too well and it, this maybe fits in I thought it was worth remembering that it seems that there's a kind of preoccupation if you like across the industry about uh, it's almost like the holy grail of finding some way of accelerating maturation processes It'll be some great wonder invented. So I, th I think in over the piece I've heard of, I think Glenn Monji talked about microwaving casks or infrared light treatments or heat treatment. 
and the, well, not so much scotch, but certainly bourbon being percolated through uh, roasted wood chips. I, I I read one where they were they were playing um, they were playing hip hop and playing <laughs> reggae and you know like stuff with really heavy bass lines uh-huh. and they were playing that through big subwoofers because that was going to generate the vibration, the really kind of heavy, you know, when you when you go to a concert and you can just feel yeah. the bass reverberating in your chest, people were thinking that this is going to reverberate the whiskey in the cask and it's going to agitate it. Agitate. It's going to mean there's more interaction between the wood and the whiskey. I have no idea how... Uh, well, having visited them... Turned out. I've been visiting the new distillery at McAllen. I was a bit perplexed actually when I had the they've got something that probably goes with some of the name of the warehouse experience or something. But you, you go down the step and into this like concrete platform. It's a wee bit like going into like a pier into the sea, and all the way around are casks sitting on these concrete walls. And Essentially, you get a music and light show. And I remember being a bit flummoxed. So that was, you know, it, was the, it was a whole new McAllen experience compared to the old one of, I can remember there were posters and occasionally in a pub, you got a wee kind of mannequin of a, or a wee guy sitting next to a cask and he's put his finger across his lips and it says, shh, whiskey sleeping. This is the same whiskey, apparently. You know, having, it just struck me as such a contrast of being so, if you like, precious about the molecular structure of the spirit maturing compared to full-on high techno music and and light show. So maybe maybe I was missing the point there. Maybe there's something going on at McAllen in that particular. I would, I would struggle to call it a warehouse, but in that particular place, maybe that's that other authorised place. I know, but listen, shh, the whiskey's sleeping because it's a heavy night out on the, uh, out, <laughs> out of the disco. <laughs> out the night before with, with all its pals. That's yeah. what it was happening. Shh, it's had a heavy night. Yeah. But uh, as ever, getting back to my original story, as ever, these, these, um, these things about, there's kind of nothing new or things come around in a circle in the industry. So, and I picked up that in terms of that kind of total preoccupation with this magic of accelerated maturation, picked up that in when Barnard visited Yoker Distillery and his tour, would, would that be 1885, 86? Just down the road? Yeah, long lost. Unfortunately, there's very little. In fact, there's nothing left. I think there's a Cooperage Road or a Cooperage Close, something like that, and a wee bit of the burn that went through the distillery. Is, but is, is that chimney not kind of part of the I, I don't know. I've never worked it out. That's a good excuse to go and look at more maps, Stuart. Thank you. <laughs> hey. <laughs> but uh, in, in Barnard's book, he says that uh, the distillery manager took him to... Uh, to warehouse number seven, and in warehouse number seven, there was patented aging apparatus where 
the whiskey was going to be subject to immense, and I think the quote is, immense pressure of heat, mm. which would be altering the aldehydes in the spirit to take out the fieriness. So even in 1886, folk knew about there was something chemical, there were a chemical process going on. But the claim being made is that uh, that would get new make spirit to a state that you would recognise three to five-year-old whiskey. And uh, he signs off, you can have your own judgment to see if (laughs) this ever materialised. He signs off by saying, this patent is in its infancy, but arrangements have been made to work in this distillery on a larger scale. How long did how long did Yoker survive after that? <laughs> I don't know much longer. Yeah. That's another thing. I mean, you know, all of these all of these distilleries coming and going, there's a, a, an awful lot of knowledge in, in the workforce that's that's just lost. You know, there'd be guys there who for their day would have been at the forefront of what they're doing and I mean, they, they maybe then went on to work at Port Dundas or, or Tambowie, or no, Tambowie blew up, of course, but, um, you know, whatever, but just a side thought. So are we are we satisfied with that, with that potted history of the... I think that's a nice wee bit of an option. And I think you've set us up nicely there, because all scotch is matured in a second-hand cask. Mm. Or should we perhaps controversially say all scotch should <laughs> be matured in a second hand cask? Well, you get no comeback from me on that front. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been affected by any of the issues discussed tonight, <laughs> keep them to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I am. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's um, it's strange how that that has come to pass. That we're now looking at core ranges of well-known distilleries putting out expressions of aged spirit, aged whiskey in virgin oak, not virgin U.S. oak, virgin Spanish oak, virgin blah blah oak, virgin whatever. When back in 2004, Diageo's wood expert, I'm going to pretend I've I've actually met him and recorded his uh, comments on this, Diageo's wood expert, Andrew Ford, says of virgin wood, quote, within a year it is woody and over the top. Within a year it is woody and over the top. And we're now, we now have a, a slew of expressions, 10, 12 years in virgin, various types of virgin oak. I was trying to find out. This is a, this is maybe for another time, but we'll, we'll hopefully continue this if I can get the any uh, concrete information. I was trying to find out what are the economics, what's what's the difference in price between a, a used bourbon cask and just some virgin oak from the states. You know what what are the, what's the economic kind of flowchart of buy some virgin timber. And get it coopered in, in in Scotland, get it transported across across here, and get it coopered in Scotland, and then fill it. Is that is that a lot cheaper than buying a cask, 
shipping it. And I believe that most casks are shipped whole these days. I don't know if there's a lot are broken down. I think I need to look into this a bit more, but I'd be really, really interested to, to see the figures. And I wonder if that's what's driving the, or that's what partially driving the use of virgin oak. That and it's allowed by law. So we know that Scotch whiskey is hemmed in slightly. It's not allowed to use different types of wood. So in Ireland, they can use cherry, they can use chestnut, they can use mulberry, etc. But here we're, we have to use oak. So is this just one way of distillers breaking out of that flavour profile and providing the consumer with something new? Or is it just economics? Well, that's interesting. But I'd always seen it as an extension of finishing and maybe maybe we wouldn't have got to virgin oak without that going through that um and well i'm sure we'll come to sharing our own views on the what the whys and wherefores and the desirability of it well the latter isn't really that so important i, I guess but i i certainly had thought of it in that context you know that because what virgin oak brings is is at least a, you know, a big pulse of color Mm. Uh, if, if not a similar pulse of flavour. And tannin. Anyway, that's all for another episode, I'm sure. There, there's one last question I, I, I think I have to ask you. Uh, who do we salute at the end of tonight's episode? I would propose the chroniclers, the historians, the Coopers... We might, catch up. we might catch up with them in the next episode. Yeah, that's true. We're going to see them in a minute. Hold your horses, guys. We're coming to you. I was, you know, the chroniclers. Yeah, to, to the chroniclers. To the chroniclers and the whiskey uh, archivists. Super. Great toast. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.